I'm uh, excited to introduce to you Steve Brown, who, you know, when I look at Bible stories from time to time when Jesus worked and he set people free, they just they can't help but going, glory, glory, and they kind of want to jump and run and, and be all thrilled and filled with joy. And Steve is one of these guys who's a friend of mine. <laughs> Hi, my name is Steve. <laughs> who, uh, I just had to have a little fun with Dave up there. Oh, okay. Steve's a friend of mine who, he, who has had that kind of story, and, and I wanted him to share with you the great work of, of God in rescuing him and what it means when we look at this passage of Scripture that Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. So why don't you share us a little bit, Steve, about your life and, and how God worked on it. That I shall do. My name is Steve, compulsive gambler, alcoholic, addict. My story, I started... When we grew up, I was about 10 years old. My parents sold the house. We moved to a new neighborhood. We got uh, pretty much settled. And I started asking the questions, what about church? She brought us to church, brought us to Sunday school. What about any of that? She said, well, if you want to go to church, find one. Ask somebody for a ride and go. At that point, it was like, pretty much gave up on church. Religion, God, everything. I just... Too young to know any better. After that, started growing up, going into school, mixed up with the wrong crowd, got into alcohol and drugs, and gave up completely. All the rest of them people were just a bunch of weirdos. Didn't want nothing to do with any of that. As long as I could get high and drunk, that's all that mattered to me. The rest, I just didn't care. After that, I started working jobs, getting laid off, getting fired getting into relationships, mixed up, getting out of them, friendships. Friends would come and go as long as the drugs and alcohol were there. Come and go, come and go. Never thought much about it. I was living in just a fog. I was just clouded. Couldn't see the truth that was in my heart. It was there, but I didn't care. I was having too good a time. I started uh, working at a place, got laid off. My buddy was sitting around smoking up. He said, work with my brother. It's something that uh, he's been doing for a few years, building swimming pools. You build six months of the year, summer months, get the rest of the year off. I'm thinking I'm in heaven. <laughs> this is cool. I can party my brains out. So, so work for the summer and collect unemployment in the winter. In the winter, yep. That fit. That was a great fit. <laughs> and being the guy that I was, getting older in years, it was more... The alcohol part of it was more about just getting drunk, puking, or passing out. It wasn't about just go have a beer. It was kind of fun. The weed, the marijuana stuff, it was about wake up, get high, get high before I go to bed all day long. So at that point, none of the church stuff mattered to me. I was building these pools, working with this guy that I came to call God Boy. He's and praising and God worshiping. Boy. Why is it God Boy? Uh, he had a radio station on. The same thing every day. Doing this stuff. And he's got that going on. And it's just like, he's doing this praise and worship and stuff. He's praying for us once in a while. And I'm just thinking, this guy's a fruitcake. The money's good. I can still get high, do my thing, and it's not a big deal. One day, well, that winter, that summer came to a close. I took off the partying, doing my thing. Getting drunk, pass out here or there, doing whatever it took to get my next fix. 
Phone rings in the springtime, ready to go to work. Okay, I'll give it a shot. Go to work. What's the MO? <laughs> Same old God boy stuff. And it was just, the money was too good, the freedom was too good, I couldn't give it up. It's starting to sink in. My heart's starting to open up a little bit. Working with him. Finally one day he goes, Steve, I see it in you. I was puzzled. Pretty stoned, but I was puzzled. <laughs> I almost got out of the moving truck. You've gone too far this time. You crossed the line. I don't want to hear any of it. Don't want none of it. Working together, working together. He says, try this church. Services have changed a lot. They play this cool music, the stuff we hear on the radio. You know it. They do videos. They do that kind of stuff. It's really something you should experience. All right. I'll go just to appease you. Just, you'll drop it and it'll be done. We go. People from the neighborhood that we used to party with all the time were out there. He was running the sound. He was running the lights. Another guy singing. All these party heads. What happened to them? Where'd they go? (laughs) Well, apparently they found the road quicker than I did. And it was just amazing to see them. So even more, heart opened up a little more. I could start to see that maybe there's something to this. Maybe there's something that I'm supposed to be doing. The year ended. I was working on drinking and getting drunk and taking care of business and reading my Bible. The Bible that he bought me. Because after the service, he said, let's go to the bookstore. Go to the bookstore. He buys it for me. And he didn't say anything. He didn't say read it. Nothing. Just He dropped it left it alone. Summer In the wintertime, I read it. Open it, page one, start going. My M.O., for the most part, at that point in my life was get drunk, get high. I don't need to finish anything. I had projects all over the place that I started and never finished. But that one was one that I was going to finish. Somehow I got through numbers, kept on reading. (laughs) Which is quite an accomplishment. I got to Matthew. You were going to actually finish this. Exactly. I'm doing it no matter what. I get to Matthew, and the tears just started pouring down my face. I was just bawling like a baby, and I couldn't just feel his presence. I knew the Lord was with me. You have to make a choice, son. I did. I got up, poured out my drink, looked at it, poured out my bottle. Went back, sat down, tried to read some more. I couldn't read anymore. Went to bed. Got up the next day, and it was gone. Just the desire for drinking out of my life. It was done. I haven't drank for almost 11 years. I still had quite the monkey on my back with the marijuana. And I found a new high, gambling. It was nothing at first. It was just a little excitement, a little fun. But it reared its ugly head. I conditioned myself to be high. Gambling's a different type of high. It's not something you put in you. It comes from the brain. You told me earlier it's like almost the purest form of high because it's no drug. It's the brain. Yeah, exactly. It's endorphins. It's dopamine and adrenaline. I mean, it's, it comes from you. I get into this church. I, I'm going to back up here a little bit. I was working with the guy building God Boy, building swimming pools. I go to build this pool. I get to the customer's house. And... Oh, the year ended, next year starts, 
I'm going to a customer's house, same MO, radio station, same stuff. It's me this time. I was working with somebody different. Now I'm down in the ground praising and worshiping. <laughs> You're a I'm God praying. boy. <laughs> I've turned into God boy. I'm doing this stuff. The guy there says, hey, come to this church. It's really quite different. We have music and videos and stuff you got on the radio. So I did the same thing. Okay. I walked in there. I felt like I was at home. I just knew that that was the place to be. I could feel the Holy Spirit working in me. Through a series of events, I got into a small group. Working with those people week in, week out. I could just lie to their faces. Yeah, I'm fine. Everything's good. It's all okay. I was killing myself inside. I was lying, cheating, manipulating, starving. Eat white rice and beans. What else did I have? I spent every penny I had from three jobs at the casino. And I was high, so it didn't really matter. They taught me how to love again. They taught me it's okay to cry. It's okay to be real. Say what you feel. If you have to shout, if you have to scream, whatever. Do what you need to do. And they showed me the love of Christ, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Through them, I could really feel it and know that He's alive and real. I started to confide in some of the people with problems in my life. There was one woman there. Why her? I don't know. felt the Holy Spirit prompting me and telling me that this is the person. Go talk to her. Okay, you're the God. Go talk to her. Sure enough, she had been through compulsive gambling. She knows about it because she brought somebody else to a treatment facility, and so she was kind of familiar with what was going on. So I asked one of the members, the, the male members, one of my friends, said, will you take me out there? He brought me out there. As I was there, it was a 30-day in treatment center. Some of the members of the small group would come week in, week out, week in, week out, just to spend time with me, to sit in with sessions, and to help me through this, to help me understand what the treatment center was trying to get me to learn. They have feelings. Deal with the feelings instead of stuffing everything down. Don't mask it. Don't cover it. Just work through it. They taught me how to feel again. The church taught me how to love again. And I think really, truly, if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ orchestrating each little part of that, I'd probably be dead today. There's a lot of compulsive gamblers and addicts that think about suicide, have thought about suicide. Some have attempted it, unfortunately. Some of them have succeeded at it. I was one of the ones that it was starting in the thought press. Think, if I just turn in front of this car. Fortunately enough, it never got that far. He put a plan together that saved me from the hell I created for myself. Today I'm blessed beyond belief. Got a beautiful wife, Marilyn. Got a little baby, Serenity. Got a great job with good company. Got another little baby on the way. <laughs> that's praising the Lord, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> and with that, that's, I'll just pass. Yeah. Praise God. Isn't that cool? <laughs> and what's so cool about the way the Father and the Son come together to rescue people from our own sin and choices from this present evil age, which we're going to talk about in a moment. What is this present evil age that we're living at, especially with regard to finances? Gambling is a huge, huge issue today. Let me just share with you some statistics quickly uh, that, that share where we're at as a culture. 
What is unique about the current gambling situation is the speed at which it's gone from an undercurrent to being now a uh, socially recognized kind of a high-profile activity. Gambling industry has actually grown tenfold in the U.S. since 1975. Two-thirds of the adult population placed some kind of bet last year. Gambling among young people is on the increase. 42% of 14-year-olds, 49% of 15-year-olds, 63% of 16-year-olds, 76% is it continues to jump at 18-year-olds. In fact, um, there's two rites of passage today in our culture for especially young men. One is to go to the casino at 18 and to drink at 21. Now, it's not that they're obviously doing that before, but those are kind of like milestones. Internet gambling has nearly doubled every year since 1997. and 2001, it exceeded $2 billion. Average debt incurred by a pathological gambler is somewhere between fifty-five dollars and $90,000. For women, they have more self That's that's low. That's, that's low. Way low. But that's average. <laughs> and, 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 and they say for women, they're a little more self-constrained, uh, 15000 One in three Minnesotans say they know someone with a gambling problem. You know, half of the Minnesotans think people with lower incomes are more likely to develop some kind of a gambling problem. However, just like alcohol and drug addiction, it crosses every economic spectrum. And here's a toll-free number if you just wanted to, any, if you knew of someone, you wanted to jot it down, uh, that might be helpful. One of the things we're going to talk about is you make choices, um, yet Jesus rescued you. Mm-hmm. He rescued you from a current that was driving you in a certain direction. And one of the things I didn't list here, which is one of the facts, that depression is one of the greatest um, among people who gamble, and suicide is one of the highest numbers among people who gamble. So I'm just going to ask God to bless you and your wife, Marilyn, and your child, Serenity, and the one on the way. Father, you have been so good to Steve. You have blessed him. You reached down through a person and through then another person and then through a group of people and then through treatments and all kinds of different ways you have been good in his life in order to give him great freedom and fullness and meaning. God, continue to bless him and bless Myron and Serenity as, as they seek to follow you. And be with this little one as, she, as he or she develops, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, my brother. You're welcome. I didn't want to prophesy with the boy or girl, so I thought he or she would work. He'll work fine. He's good. Thanks. Well, if you're trapped or you're enslaved or you're in some situation where you need to be a rescue, I want to tell you, if you're at your kind of wit's end, you're thinking suicidal, you want help, you want a rescue, you put up your hand, you say, please help me. That's who Paul came to in this area of Galatia. There were a whole lot of people in these churches who who were seeking to move out of the trap, all kinds of traps. One of the traps that really had caused their hearts to be enslaved with this whole religiosity that if they just gave enough to God, they would somehow be accepted. And and Paul comes in and he says, you know, I want to tell you once again, don't get into this trap. For the Father and the Son have conspired together and according to their will, they've worked together so that Jesus would give himself for our sins, those evil, those lustful, those, those, those cravings that we have to take care of the things within us that we can't ever fulfill and we can't ever fill. He says, God the Father has come through Jesus to rescue you and set you free. Grace and peace, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Galatians. 
to you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And and I want you to note these words. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, and then to rescue us, and then to this present, the present evil age. The Word of God talks about it like the world, uses the, the concept of the world. It's this current that is, that is just pushing us in a direction and taking our own selfish desires with the world and this age and driving us into these places of bondage. And what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks is this whole area of finances and money. We're going to talk about God's great bailout plan, not the government one, but God's bailout plan through Jesus Christ to set people free from this whole area of bondage and how this present evil age is like this current that is pushing us along and how easily even a person who has known Jesus can get caught up into this current. When I was doing this series, Living in the Light, a number of people commented to me. They came up to me and said, you know, you've talked about a lot of things about, you know, not letting guilt and shame hold you back, but get honest and admit, just like Steve said, step out into the light because we all need to be real and honest. It's the only way. It's not by trying to be good. It's by being honest that God is able to work in our hearts and lives and other people are able to come around us and to, to be a part of that process of moving us out of the things that, that enslave us. And so some people had said, you know, you know, one of the areas you haven't talked about is finances. And I kind of said, well, I will be. And I didn't want to just take one Sunday on this. I wanted to take three because I feel like this is such an important thing for us to understand. It is important for us to understand, to, for instance, today, uh, what it means to determine a standard of living. And then next week to talk about what do you do to develop a plan to live in that standard of living. And then the last is to, to joyfully discover what it means to give freely. And the reason I believe this issue is so important, it's so important in light of what's even happened since September, correct? All that's happening within the economic world. Even Newsweek makes it interesting because people sometimes say, you know, don't talk about money from the pulpit. People don't like to hear about money when they go to church. You know, Newsweek is interesting. In one of their articles, they reported that they said this. Most people seem surprised by how often the Bible addresses the topic of money. More than 2,350 verses in Scripture discuss it. Jesus spoke more about money than he did about the topics of heaven and hell combined. In fact, 11 of the 39 parables that Jesus told were about money. One of every seven verses in the Gospel of Luke is about money. There was only one topic that Jesus talked about more than money in, in, in his word. And you know what that was? It was about the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the age of God that has come upon us through Jesus Christ and the rescue that he has made. And so I, with no apology, want us to know that this is something we will talk about from time to time. It's not about give the church more money. It's about how you can live a life that is free, that is not enslaved by this God that Jesus said, be very careful of. You can't serve both of them. You cannot serve money and both serve me and really know true freedom. So why do we want to talk about this? Because of the terrible bondage I believe people live in when money or the lack of it becomes their master. 
Now, when I talk about this, you may feel shame and guilt and, and, and that might come up. But I want to share with you greater than your shame and guilt. Step into the light. We all deal with these issues. Is this something we're all having to struggle with? Um, you may be in a place, as Steve said, you may be in prison. You may even what's amazing about gambling is it is it, what's so difficult about it. It is so shameful that people there's it's so difficult to talk about What's so difficult about debt is it's so shameful because you feel such a failure. And we need a bailout from God, a God of grace who comes and says, you know what, I see your situation and I love you. But you need to understand, folks, this is not just about your desires that have put you here. Yes, we make choices, and as a culture, we've made choices in this direction. But you need to understand that this culture, this present evil age, as it says in Galatians, has like a current pulled us and swept us into this bondage. Listen to this letter from a man in debt. He writes, of all the experiences in my life, I have yet to find one that compares to the sheer desperation of financial indebtedness. I suffered with wounds received in combat in Vietnam. It made me deal with my own possible death as well as those of the young men around me. At the age of 16, my father suddenly died. I loved him very much. I've had two auto accidents that left people wondering how I could have survived. I've gone through the agony of a disintegration of marriage and family through divorce. But recently... I've dealt with the embarrassment and humiliation of bankruptcy. Nothing compares to that. You see, financial bondage strips a person of the very thing God wants us to know about ourselves, and that is that we matter deeply to God. Through the abysmal pressures of debt, self-worth begins to deteriorate. Feelings of remorse, self-pity, rejection, and depression soon come around, come to be a, a normal part of daily existence. Family, church, and friends tend no longer to play an important role in one's life because one becomes totally consumed with developing plans to escape the dilemma of debt, and you just isolate yourself from friends and family. Once the inner spirit, he writes, has severely deteriorated to that condition, we become ineffective, whimpering shells, feeling sorry for ourselves and wondering what we could have done to deserve such a fate. And he continues right near the end of his letter. He says, ahead of me lies the battle for economic solvency. It may be that I was, will be plagued with the results of my poor past judgment for quite some time. However, I am taking strides now to identify and resolve the situation. I know that this is what God would have me to do because I matter to him because Jesus has come and rescued me. Those are sobering words from someone who never, in, I believe, never intended to be a slave to debt. But as a result of choices and because of this evil present age, faces a sentence of humiliation, anxiety, shame due to a consumptive, self-indulgent lifestyle and a culture which pushes us in that direction. As I read this, I thought, how many today in our nation, because of even the turn that's happened right now back in September, how many today in our community, how many that we walk by, how many within our church or in churches around us know far too well the reality and the pain of financial bondage? Bills to, due to our wants and felt needs that have over the years gotten larger and larger on our credit cards and our credit lines. 
money owed over time that leaves us figuring out what creditors will get this pay during this pay period. A standard of living that often is beyond what we can afford, but have become enslaved to thinking we deserve. Well, if this sounds familiar, you're all so quiet. You're not alone. You're not alone. I read recently in one, a magazine article, not a conservative public, you know, a conservative magazine article. Uh, it says two decades of easy money and innovative financial products meant that virtually anyone, so you're not alone, could borrow any amount of money for any purpose. If we wanted a bigger house, a better TV, a faster car, and we didn't actually have the money to pay for it, no problem. We put it on a credit card, took out massive mortgage and financed our fantasies. And as fantasies grew, so did our household debt from $680 million in 1974 to $14 trillion today. The total has doubled in just the past seven years. The average household owns 13 credit cards and 40% of them carry a balance. But he goes on and he says, but the average American's behavior is like a virtue compared with the government's. Specifically, every city, county, and state has borrowed big. And he says the fancy word for that is leverage. We've leveraged ourselves individually and collectively. And he ends it by saying the whole country has been complicit in a great fraud. This evil present age has swept us all up into this. The biblical word is far more graphic, much more realistic, and pretty simple. We're slaves. And we become slaves not to money, folks. The Word of God is very clear on it. It's not money. It's the love of. The Word of God is very clear on it. We have become slaves not to, to money or even if you want to just define it further than love. We become slaves to our own gratification of our desires and our lusts and our passions. And with this present evil age, working together has swept us together and we've been complicit together. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks is just address this national crisis that I believe has reached epidemic proportions where close to four out of five Americans owe more than they own. How do we determine a standard of living that allows us to live inwardly free and thankful lives? Isn't that what we're supposed to be about? A lifestyle that, although it may not measure up to the styles of living that you will see often on commercials or in the movies or seen in magazines, is free and it is full and it is meaningful. A lifestyle where our desires and our passions are, are, are disciplined by something greater because of this rescue of Jesus. And to do this, I want to ask this this morning, four questions. And I want to, for people who, who are really kind of timekeepers right now, I do have a clock, so I'm watching. The first question we'll take more time on. The second, third, and fourth we'll kind of rush through, okay? So if I'm still on question one and you're seeing the time coming down, it's purposeful. This time. Um, question one. Why do so many of us live beyond our means? I include myself. Why do so many of us live beyond our means? I want us to look at how the present evil age has actually shaped our lives and how we think as people. And to do this, we have to look back historically, okay? It's important that we look at this present evil age because next week we'll talk about our desires, okay? But this week you have to look at this present evil age. The world has changed dramatically in 100 years, has it not? Anybody want to disagree with that? Some of you who are more than 60, 70 years of age want to attest to that? 50 years has brought great changes. 
The world has changed most dramatically in the area of money, its availability, the pressure to use, misuse, and abuse it. Somewhere around the turn of the century, we made this gradual turn from becoming what I call a production-oriented economic system to what is now known as a consumer-oriented economic system. Here's a little history just to help you understand what we're up against. I believe we have been swept away by a, a flood tide of consumerism that is just as real as the flood that swept through New Orleans and just as devastating in the lives of people, in marriages, in families. These words from a cleverly titled article, it's a four-part article, it's, it's called Why the Devil Takes Visa. Help me understand some of this flow. Historians are agreed, this person writes, that production-oriented capitalism moved to become consumption-oriented capitalism because capitalism was just so successful. Until the 20th century, most American homes were sites not only of consumption, but also of production. Even as late as 1856, of 10 people worked on farms. They made most of their tools. They built their own homes and barns. They constructed their own furniture. They wove and sewed their clothes, grew crops and animals, producing food and drink. They chopped wood, made candles to provide heat and light. One 19th century Massachusetts farmer, for instance, produced so much of what he needed at home that he never spent more than $10 a year. The Industrial Revolution changed all that, right? Very quickly. It displaced home production by by cheaply producing a host of commodities formally made at home. For me, I just have to think back to when I was a little kid. My mom did some thing when my socks got holes in them. She actually, they called, she darned my socks. Now, for those of you who are young, you're thinking, you know, it's not a bad word that you're using here. She was sewing up the holes. How many did that at one time? How many would ever do that again? Yeah, there's a few who do. The Industrial Revolution changed all that. It displaced home production, even home repair, in a sense. And the numbers here are staggering. From 1859 to 1899, 40 years, the value of manufactured goods in the United States shot from $1.9 billion to $13 billion. Factories grew in 40 years from 140,000 factories to 512,000. This was a revolution of massive scale. Rather suddenly, this economic system could produce many more goods than the existing population could afford and consume. For instance, this article says, when James Buchanan Duke procured merely two Bonsack cigarette machines, he could immediately produce, listen to this, 240,000 cigarettes a day, more than the entire U.S. market smoked by two machines in one day. Such overproduction was the rule, not the exception, throughout the entire economy. Further, new products emerged for which markets needed to be developed. For instance, when Henry P. Crowell of Quaker Oats, sorry those of you with General Mills, but anyway, of Quaker Oats, built an automated mill in 1882, most Americans ate meat and potatoes, not cereal for breakfast. Remember that little statement? You know, he's a meat and potatoes guy. They ate meat and potatoes, not cereal for breakfast, but here's why. There was, in short, a huge gap between production and consumption. The question was, how do you close this gap? The momentum of production had built up so fast that cutting production wasn't really an option. Any good marketing student will tell you, in those kind of times when there's a gap, what you do is you pump up consumption, create demand, and teach consumption as a way of life. At least 
for whatever it is that you or your company is overproducing. The article continues, people had to move from habits of strict thrift towards habits of ready spending. What happened with, with uh, this Quaker Oats thing is that they created so much cereal, they had to make a market for it and sell it. And it did. It changed the way people approached their mornings. How many still eat meat and potatoes? Well, there's a few. Well, here's this overproduction. Enter the age of advertisement. Until the 19th century, the article continues, advertising had been merely informational. It was merely informational. They were like news items. Such ads would inform people that a shipment of rice had arrived from the Carolinas. That, that's what would be, you know, you'd be reading the paper and go, hey, hon, guess what? We got some rice that came in from the Carolinas. Indeed, advertisers soon recognized that they must not simply cater to pre-existing needs, but they must create new needs. In 1901, the Thompson Red Book on Advertising stated this about advertising. Advertising aims to teach people that they have wants, which they didn't recognize before. And where such wants they have can best be supplied. Consequently, one newspaper back in the late 1800s said that not so long ago, people skipped ads unless some want compelled us to read it. You skipped them unless you had some want that compelled you to read it. While now we read them to find out what we really want. Now fast forward your TiVos, or in case you haven't realized that there is a want and a need, you're maybe still using a video machine. And those of you who got your TV, you fast forward it. And see, we've progressed one more step. From production to teaching people to be consumers. The first step was simply this, to get people to move from habits of saving and thrift to become ready spenders. Having done that successfully, now the problem a generation or two later, once you, once you move people and saying, well, I won't quit saving, I'll put, you know, stop putting stuff under my, 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 uh, my mattress and they get them to spend. Now they begin to spend and they don't have anything more to spend. Step two, give people who have nothing to spend what? Easy credit. I, I just, I'm just trying to paint a picture of what has happened in this world, what has caused us to move along this, this current that, that excites our desires and puts us into places that God never intended us to be so that we become trapped. Step two, give people who have nothing to spend easy credit. People who have been trained to spend yet with no money to spend now unleash upon them a wave of credit. An ad in the paper at a local furniture store which will say no interest for one year. In the mail almost daily for, for, for weeks and months before last September, credit card companies would send you, can you believe it? You would get in the mail and they say, we want to give you $10,000. I mean, it's like winning the lottery. You don't have to do anything. You just sign up and, and we'll give it to you. Or the bank calls with great news because, you know, here you have all these wants and things and they go, hey, Kevin, guess what? You know, you didn't think you had any money to spend, did you? Well, good news. You have a bunch of money and it's in your house. Just drop by and we can give you a credit line to buy whatever it is that your little heart desires and wants. 
And consumer capitalism has unlocked the lid of our desires and wants, and now the world around us will even help us pursue the dream of life, liberty, and happiness through our next purchase product, our next service, or our next experience, right? I remember growing up and going to a little grocery store over here in Crystal, a little super value, and, and walking with my mom. This is how things have changed in just a short time of my life. Walking through, and, and they didn't have, she didn't have credit then. I mean, hardly, I think... Um, Checks were just starting and stuff, and, and I would say to my mom, Mom, let's get these popsicles. And I remember taking them and putting them in the, in the cart, and she taking them and putting them back out and say, Kevin, we don't have money for that. Today, all you have to do is walk down through the grocery aisle. If your kid says, hey, I want this, they just grab it and they put it in there, and you kind of think, oh, so what? Or if you want that new hot electronic product down at the, next, you know, down at the store, or, or you want to buy that vacation experience that you so deserve because you deserve a break today, right? You just put it on the credit card. And that's, that's an amazing trap that we as people are in. We've moved almost unknowingly from producers to consumers to ready spenders to easy credit. And to, here's the question I want you to wrestle with. Could this financial crisis, think about this, could this financial crisis not just be a blip like the flu with regard to our economic health? But could it be God's gracious hand reaching down to a whole group of people saying, I would like to get a hold of you so you don't have to live in in debt and enslavement to your desires. I want to set you free. I want to set you free. Farid Zakaria, back in October 20th, 2008, wrote this article after the whole meltdown. He wrote this article that says, there's a silver lining. Some of us, especially those under 60, have always wondered what it would be like to live through the kind of epical event one reads about in books. Well, this is it. We're now living history, suffering one of the greatest financial panics of all time. It compares with the big one, 1907-1929, and we cannot yet know its full consequences for the financial system, the economy, or the society as a whole. He writes, big questions remain. This is back in October. What will it take to stop the fall? How costly will it be? How long before the rescue plan, not God's, he's talking about the rescue plan, he's talking about the government at that point when Bush was, they were making those decisions on what to do. How long before the rescue plan starts to have an effect? But at some point, the panic that gripped world markets will end, he says. Of course, that will mean, that will not necessarily mean a return to growth or a bull market. We're in for some tough times. But it may mean a return to sanity. Amid all the difficulties and hardships, he writes, that we are about to undergo, I see one silver lining. The crisis has dramatically, vengefully forced the United States to confront the bad habits it's developed over the past few decades. If we can kick those habits, today's pain will translate into gains in the long run. And church people, I think God is saying, I... I sent the Father and Son together saying, give yourself, Jesus, for the sin, these desires that this present evil age has just swept people into and let's set them free. Let's set them free. Let's bring some sanity back to our lives. Because it's really sad, isn't it, when you, when you want to give and you can't? Question two is this. Who determines your standard of living? Who determines it? 
I want to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about developing a standard of living. What does it mean to, to develop a standard of living that I believe Jesus and his word says that we should live by? And by it, we live free and meaningful and full lives, and we have the ability to give to those things that God places in our hearts to give. Because there's really three external pressures that, that I think push people, and I'm going to talk to especially younger people here. These three things push you to live in a, in a, in a way, in a standard that is not necessarily God's standard. One is parents. Not that parents are bad, but basically what happens for most people, our expectations are set in the very home we're raised in, right? And so the home you leave is the home you expect to have when you start your life. That's just bizarre, but it happens. We don't think of the years of of, of saving and work and effort that gets to that place that maybe your parents had. And most often, without thinking, we merely adopt the standard we lived in. And we need to think about that. And we're going to talk about what standard is it that we're to compare ourselves to. What about this one, peers? So many of us live according to what our peers are doing. If our peers are making a certain amount of money, we, we either want to live up to that standard of living or because they live at that standard, we can't hardly have a friendship with them because it, it just separates us or makes us feel guilty and shameful. And God hates both. Because what gets divided there is friendship. And peers were never to pull us into a standard of living that's not what we're about. God wants you to live according to his word in a way that sets you free, that you don't have to live with the guilt and the shame that comes from living beyond what you have. Or, or the projected media image today. Just watch the commercials next week in the, in the Super Bowl. Think about it for a second. Some of the brightest minds in the world sit down at tables to think about putting something in commercials, not just on Super Bowl Sunday, but throughout the year, to think about how to get you to give something that you want, or to get something that you think you want. Isn't that amazing? They'll do everything they can. They'll put the brightest and best. And I have to tell you, those kind of pressures lead us to live. So what's the standard of living? And then let me ask you a third question. Is the pain and bondage of this present age, the ongoing growing debt, worth the price that you pay personally, emotionally, within your homes, within your marriages. And it's really funny. Um, you do studies on, on marriage difficulties, and there's usually about three or four, but one of the highest ones that you find in, in marriage difficulties is that around finances. And I have to tell you, I think Satan has a heyday. He goes, boy, we've got this thing going. People are trapped, and I am messing up people's lives. And he's using our desires to do so. And Timothy was warned by Paul, people who want to get rich fall into a trap, a temptation, and, they, and it's into the many foolish and harmful desires that it plunges them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I think God is asking the question very simply, is it worth it all? And then the fourth is this, how can you determine appropriate standard of living for you and your family? We're going, to, we're going to really go into that next week. But I just want to conclude by, by saying this very simply, that I believe that Jesus was sent to give us freedom, to set us free. He has come to any person here who wants to, and he says he will give you a new heart, and out of that new heart will come new desires. Now, I have to share with you, if you've never opened your heart, like Steve was up here talking about how God came into his heart, and it was a process, a series. It's a process of cooperating with this rescuer. And the very first step is just to admit the fact I need your help. Don't be in guilt and don't be in shame, but say, God, I admit I need your help. And the second step is to ask for help. 
It's merely to say, God, I ask for your help and I will, as a result of this, what I've heard today, I commit myself to begin to understand what it means to develop a plan and to understand that plan, to live by that plan so that you can set me free. So that when when like the plate goes by and you want to give to someone or you see someone in need, you want to give, but you feel like you can't, you now can because you have the means and resources according to this to do so. That's my prayer for us as a people. And it may take some of you who are in positions who are who have been trained by some disciplines of another age to sit down with others who who need your the help of someone sitting down and mentoring. But we as a church, as a body, need to do this together. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to pray and we're going to sing this song that I am free because we're going to declare this. Whether you feel free at this moment or not, if you have in your heart said, God, I admit I need your help and I ask for your help. If you open your heart and say, come in and begin, Jesus, to rescue me in this situation, the declaration is it's already beginning to happen. He is already setting you free. He loves you that much.